a way to start, water breaking. Um, all right, I want to welcome you all again to RUF. And uh, for those of you who don't really know what we do here, I want to give you just a little sound bite about what we do before we actually get into it and, and do what we do. Uh, we are a Christian organization uh, here at ASU's campus that exists primarily for non-Christians and Christians. And so what, what we try to do is we want this to be a safe place for whether or not you are skeptical or spiritual, that this can be a place where you can come in and honestly process what the message of the Bible is. This, this is something that we do here. And so what we do each week is we gather around uh, a portion of the Bible to attend to its claims about who Jesus is and about who we are in light of that. So, regardless of where you stand, you are welcome to come in with your beliefs, with your doubts. Uh, this is hopefully a group that is for you. And so, so the, the actual text of the Bible that we're going to gather around this semester is the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you're familiar, uh, Paul, St. Paul, who I'm sure many of y'all have heard of, wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus. And now we have it uh, preserved in the Bible as the book of Ephesians. So... In light of all that, what I want to do is just draw your attention to the little handout that you have. We're going to look at one verse tonight out of, out of the book of Ephesians and just uh, use that as our launching point into this, into this book this semester. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I'll read it for us and then we'll jump in and look at it. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is God's word. If you, if you would, please pray with me, and then we're going to look at it together, okay? Father, I ask uh, in these next moments that you would uh, be with us as we uh, turn our attention to this verse. I pray that you would help us to understand it, because you know that apart from your help, we can't. So please come and open up our eyes so that we would see what is true and what is beautiful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want you to imagine this. You wake up in the morning... You know, like at 11.30 when you wake up. And uh, you do what you always do is you check Ray's weather. And then uh, before you head off to class, uh, you grab a Pop-Tart or a Hot Pocket or whatever you all eat. And uh, you go to class and you're, and you're pretty much gone from your dorm or from your apartment all day. I mean, you've, you've gone to class. You've hung out on the mall with, with your friends. You've just kind of, you know, chilled out, had dinner. And you're making your way back to your dorm or to your apartment around sunset. But you get this really weird feeling because as you're coming up to your dorm or your apartment, you can't actually see the building, and you should because, you know, it's, it's a tall structure. And as you get closer, you see that there are all kinds of people gathered around, and there's fire trucks, and there's police cars, and sirens, and, and the lights are freaking out and going crazy. And as you crest the hill, you can see what has happened. Your dorm has actually collapsed into a sinkhole and is now buried 30 feet in the earth. This would be a bad day, um, <laughs> unless you lived in Gardner, and uh, then, then <laughs> no, it's a bad day, bad day, you know, because your laptop was in it, and, and, uh, and, you know, it was a bad day, but did you know, did you know that this actually happened? Uh, out in Colorado Springs, um, Basically, the story from 1800 to about the 1950s, uh, the area outside of Colorado Springs used to be coal mining town. And so, I mean, you know what coal mining is, is where they, you know, bear, you know uh, dig these huge, enormous tunnels in the earth. And uh, what they did was, you know, 
huge coal mining, just digging around, building these huge tunnels everywhere. But as the coal industry dried up and as Colorado Springs began to grow, what, what they did was they sold these old mine shafts to the real estate developers. And so real estate developers simply just sealed off the mine shafts and on top of them built neighborhoods and schools and golf courses and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, the problem was is that they had sealed off the mines, but they had not filled them. And so literally, uh, underneath all of these neighborhoods and all of these playgrounds and underneath all these shopping malls were miles and miles of emptiness. And there was nothing but a thin layer of the Earth's crust standing between all of civilization and just nothing. And so it literally, neighborhoods began to start sinking into the ground where you would come back from work and find your house buried in the Earth. I mean, you can read about all this. This is all on the internet. The last major incident happened in 2005. It's just crazy. You come back and everything you own is buried in the earth. Now, why am I talking about this? Here's why. Because everybody in this room is building your life on something. There is some foundation that you are revolving your entire life around, some priority that you're saying, my life is going to orbit around this. And so the question for you tonight and the question for me tonight is the same question that those folks out in Colorado Springs are asking, which is this, what am I building my life on? And whatever it is, can it support the weight of what I'm building on it? And so in light of this one little verse in Ephesians, what I want to do is just raise three questions about this passage, and along these lines, okay? So here's the first question that we're going to look at tonight. Simply, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? To answer that question, I want you to look back at the verse with me real quick. Uh, You see that phrase, uh, live a life worthy of the calling you have received? That word worthy in the original languages is a, a metaphor. It's a word picture. It's trying to evoke this picture in your head, and it's the picture of uh, scales, not like lizard scales, but like weighing scales, you know, the kind that you'd find in an old like ancient marketplace or, uh, you know, you sometimes see them on courts of law, you know, the two uh, pans that are suspended, you know, they got this cross beam and, you know, whatever you put on one side moves up. I mean, you know how this works. You put a pound of lead over here and then when you pour enough grain and it, and it equals out, you know, you have a pound of grain. This is how it works, right? There's, <laughs> there's equilibrium there. There's balance or to use the word in Ephesians, they are worthy, And so, um, what I want you to see is the assumption here. The assumption behind why Paul chose that word is because he assumes whatever you put on this side is going to affect this side. Whatever you build your life on over here, it's going to have byproducts into your day-to-day experience. Okay, So he's writing to a group of believing Christians, a church in Ephesus, and he says, you have received a calling. That's the language of uh, of verse 1. And he's referring to basically the calling that God has issued to them, the calling of the gospel. You have been called by God into this new life. And he says, okay, in light of that, I assume that you're building your life on this calling that you have received. And now I want you to live a life in balance and consistently with that very thing. So just look at the verse again. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. If you put the gospel on one side, this should play out practically on the other. Or not, phone person. Um, (laughs) But the important thing is that I want you to see the assumption. Sorry, whoever that was. I know that's embarrassing already. I just want you to see the assumption behind why he chose that. What you build your life on affects your day-to-day experience. And so here's the question. 
Uh, what does it mean when I keep saying build your life on something? It's an odd phrase. Here's what I mean. Uh, you remember that Will Ferrell skit from SNL where he's playing um, this uh, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, father who's disgruntled because he feels like he doesn't get any respect from his disrespectful teenage daughter and his passive-aggressive wife. And they're sitting out there at the table, if you remember this, they're quietly you know, chopping up the food and you just hear the clinking of the silverware. And so he just asks you know, one question, like, how was your day? And you know what happens in this, at the skit, if you've seen it. Within two seconds, they're just shouting. It's this huge, like, escalated fight. And what does Will Ferrell shout to end the fight. I drive a Dodge Stratus, right? <laughs> he, he also says this at one point. I can do 100 push-ups in 20 minutes, which is... Now, why does he say this? Other than the fact that, you know, he's Will Ferrell and he's stupid. Um, but what's really going on, what's really going on in this character's life is, hey, this is something really important about me. This validates my existence, and therefore this warrants your respect, Okay, everybody in this room tonight is looking at something and announcing in your heart, this is what validates my existence. This is what makes me different. This is what makes me special. This is what makes or warrants other people's respect from me, whatever that is. And so the question I want you to think about tonight is what is it? As you begin to think about your life and process and dig deep down and no religious pretending allowed, what is my life really about? What does my life orbit around? What is it built on? Because whatever it's built on on this side is going to affect and have impact into your day-to-day experience. And so you can look at some of the problems that you have and trace it back to figure out what it is that your life is really about. So, for example, if you are building your life on other people's approval of what other people think about you, if people like you or not, then the way that this plays out into your life, my guess, is that uh, you feel anxious a lot of the time, Uh, You're one way around this group of people. You're a totally different way around this group of people. Um, uh, You're you're willing to compromise your your ethics really quick. You're constantly thinking about what other people think about you. You may have even struggled with, very likely, even what you wore this morning or picked out what you were going to wear even to come into this room. It's that big of a struggle to figure out what am I going to look like? How are people going to see me? If that's what you're building your life on. Or... Uh, if you're building your life on uh, your academic performance, your, your grades, your resume, what, whatever, kind of building up your, you know, your career sh- spreadsheet, whatever that means, uh, that plays out into your life by, my guess, is being very busy. And you don't have time for your friends and you're losing sleep over all this stuff. It's controlling you and that way it has these kind of byproducts into your life, Right? Or just another example, if you are building your life on entertainment and on pleasure and just saying, I'm going to suck the meaning out of life as much as I can, the way that this plays out in your life is, I mean, you, you know how fun it is to party like that initially and then just how quickly empty and hollow that becomes? Or you find yourself uh, sleeping through class uh, because you woke up at 2 in the afternoon because you went to bed at 6 in the morning because you were playing Call of Duty all night, right? I mean, you see how this plays out in your life. Everybody is building your life on something. And so the question is, what is it? It could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It could be uh, getting married. It could be being in shape. Whatever it is, you are looking at something and saying, this is what makes me special. And you're going invo- to revolve your entire life around getting it or keeping it and making sure that you have it. And here's what really sucks about all this is none of it works. I mean, you know what it's like. It feels like life is sinking into a sinkhole. It's just, it's not working. 
I, mean, I, I really don't have to convince you of this uh, because, I mean, just look at your own life. You feel anxious, you feel guilty, you feel stressed out, you feel empty, you feel hollow. It's, it's not working. And so here's the second question that I want to raise in light of all this is this. If nothing works, what is it that will? What is it that will bring me life? What can I settle upon that will actually hold me and not sink into ruin? Well, I want you to look back at the, uh, the verse with me if you can. So just you know, reference your sheet. This verse is smack dab uh, right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. This is actually the transition point from the first half of the book into the second half of the book. And so when he says uh, the calling you have received, again, he is just using shorthand to refer back to the whole first half of this book. He's summarizing it. This is the calling you have received. Okay, but what, is the whole, what does that mean and what is the whole first, of this, first half of this book about? It is about another phone call. Wow. It is about more phone calls. No, that's all right. Um, we should have like a sign or something. Please silence your phone. No, that's all right. Um, the whole first half of this book is about what God has done for you in the gospel, what God himself has accomplished. And so... We're going to be spending, we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 1 next week and just start working our way through it. And we're going to spend the whole first half of this semester on the first half of this book. And to be honest, some of y'all are going to get really frustrated with that because Paul doesn't tell you to do anything in the first half of this book. There are no commands in it. And you're going to be sitting there reading it and hearing this week after week after week. And you're going to go, okay, okay, okay. But what am I supposed to do? And the point is nothing right now. Just sit there and take in what God has already done. And this verse points you and leads you into the second half of the book where he fleshes all that out, what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to relate to our friends and our roommates and our family. He gets into all of that. But for the first half of this book, it is about what God himself has done. And here's why all of this is so important and why we are spending an entire night on one verse. It is because if you miss the order here, you miss the heart of Christianity altogether. And what I mean by order, I mean, I mean the, the order of the book. Namely, who you are determines what you do. That is the claim of the Bible. Who you are determines what you do. And Christianity is utterly unique in this regard. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview says the exact opposite. Namely, what you do determines who you are. So let me explain what I mean by that, by maybe kind of painting a picture of the contrast of the opposite. Namely, what you do determines who you are. Do a whole bunch of stuff, do, 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 all this stuff, and then you will be something. There's, there's, a religious, there's a religious form of this. All religions basically operate on this principle. Here's the rule book. Recite these prayers, adhere to these rituals, you know, keep these values, do this stuff. Do all this activity and then you will be something. You will be wise. You will be enlightened. You will be saved. You will be whatever the word is for that system. But you see the order. It's what you do determines who you are. Your identity is based on your activity. But can you see from the outset that there is insecurity built into the system? How do you know if you're doing enough? How do you know if you're sincere enough? How do you know if you're believing enough? It doesn't work. And the fallout of this... You have these moral standards. If you live up to your religious moral standards, you feel really self-righteous and you feel really superior to everybody else. And I'm sure you know people that live like that. But if you don't live up to your moral standards, you feel very self-loathing and you feel inferior to everybody. I can't get my 
act together like that person. You look at these kind of stud Christians. You're like, I wish I was like them. I wish I could get my act together like them. You know what I'm saying? That's the religious form. But it's not just religions. It's irreligions as well. It's, there's an irreligious you know, form of this as well. It's just a totally, it's a totally different system, but it operates on the same principle. Namely, what you do determines who you are. So what's the doing of the irreligious system? Well, you, um, you know, kind of decide what you want about truth. You kind of write off religious values, but you have a moral code that you live by as well. And in Boone, that, that looks like this, that you, uh, uh, buy local and you buy organic and, uh, you have a concern for the environment and concern for the community. It's just a different moral code. And if you're living up to this moral code, you feel self-righteous and superior to other people, right? Especially it gives you the resources to look down on those traditional conservative types who don't hold the same values that you do. But if you aren't living up to your moral standards, you're self-loathing and cynical, right? It's the same problem with all systems. Every philosophy, every religion, every worldview has the same intrinsic problems built into them. They do not work. And as a result... Tons of people are living this way and tons of people are insecure and unstable. And this explains why there are religious people and irreligious people that are self-righteous jerks and self-loathing cynics. It doesn't work. But Christianity comes in and it offers a better way. It says, no, it is not based on what you do, therefore determines who you are. It's the exact opposite. Who you are determines what you do. And so for the whole first half of this book, Paul is just going to be pounding into your head, in your heart, who you are in Jesus. Because the claim of Christianity is it's not based on what you do. It's based on what somebody else has done. This is what Christianity claims. It says, when you give up on your resume, when you kind of throw aside all of any sort of claim that you had to God's attention and come to him and say, look, I got nothing my resume, everything I've done good, everything I've done bad, it, it, please use it uh, as garbage and count me, treat me on the basis of somebody else's performance. And Christianity says, when you do that, God actually says, okay, I will. On the basis of Jesus' performance. That, that's the claim. When you come to God by faith and say, Please discard everything I've done good, everything I've done bad, all of my record, all of my wrong, and count it as what Jesus has done. Jesus takes care of my bad, and he gives me a a track record that is better than what I could have ever had. And God says, and I will accept you, and I will receive you on Jesus' basis. I mean, this is how it works. I mean, you've had this happen before. You're like hanging out with this kid, and uh, he's doing some project, and he's screwing it up, and you're trying to help him, but he won't let you. You know, so for example, like you're, you're hanging out with this third grader, and he's um, working on a physics project, because uh, this is honors, uh, third grade, and, um, and he's screwing it up over and over and over and over. And you're like, dude, let me help you. I can, I can fix this. He's like, no. You know, I mean, you've had this happen. And... Uh, <laughs> As long as he continues to try and do it, he will fail and screw it up over and over. He will not get it right. But if he comes to you and says, look, okay, I can't do it. I can't. I need you to do it for me. And so you come in and you like, do it perfectly because you're like, really into physics. And um, uh, he turns it in the next morning and gets an A on it. He gets the credit for what you accomplished. I mean, that, that is a picture of what Christianity is and what Christianity is claiming. That when you come to God and say, look... 
My resume, my track record, I can't do this thing. I'm constantly screwing it up. Please treat me on the basis of what Jesus has done. God says, I will. I will accept you on that. So back to our second question. What is it that will give you life? It is the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus. And the invitation of this text is for everyone in this room, including me, to actually believe it. Which leads to our third question. What does that mean? To believe it. Believe the gospel. Matt, what are you talking about? Um, for just a moment, I, I, I want to. if you're somebody in this room who identifies yourself as uh, uh, someone who's not a Christian, uh, or if you're somebody in this room who doesn't really know if you're a Christian or not, I, I want to talk to you for a second. Because my guess is when you hear someone like me who is a Christian invite you to believe the gospel, what you're actually hearing me saying is, okay, I've got to start cleaning up my act. I've got to start getting my life straight. I've got to start coming to religious meetings. I've got to start doing all this good stuff. And you have to hear me say, that is not what I'm saying. And that is not the invitation for you. The invitation is not to start working. The invitation is simply to rest on the work of what Jesus has done. Let me explain a little bit more what I mean by that. This summer, my wife and I really got into this TV show called The Bachelorette. And... Um, <laughs> um, I know, I know. Half the room just wrote me off. I get it. It was a love-hate relationship, though. Uh, it, was, um, uh, it was a guilty pleasure. And, uh, but you understand the premise of the show, right? There's, there's one girl and 25 guys competing with each other to fall in love with her. I mean, it's, it's terrible and yet awful uh, and yet amazing. Because, um, uh, you know, because, you know... It's terrible. But anyway, halfway, halfway through the show, Allie, the bachelorette, um, was being interviewed by one of the you know, people there, the hosts there. And she said something that was actually really interesting. Well, at first she said, you know, I'm really, getting, I'm really enjoying getting to know all these guys and uh, you know, make out with half of them. And um, it's awful. Uh, but she said something that was really insightful. She said, you know, but honestly, at the end of the day, I'm really afraid that they won't love me in return. And we're just like, what? You are like this beautiful, confident person, and 25 people are competing to fall in love with you as the premise of the show. That's the premise, and she's still afraid. Why? And I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, we have that same fear. Deep down, regardless of how beautiful, confident you are, deep down, we are deeply afraid of being known and of being loved, of being accepted. Those are our deepest relational fears and at the same time our deepest relational needs. Only the gospel meets both of those. And when I say the gospel, I'm just referring to this, to this little uh, nugget of summarizing what the claim of the, the Bible is, which is this, that we are more sinful and broken and messed up than we thought we were and therefore Jesus had to die for us. And yet at the same time, we are more treasured and prized and loved than we thought we were, and therefore Jesus was glad to die for us. So you put both of those two things together, and your, your world explodes. Because it says at, the same, at, the, at, the, at one time, it says, the cross says, I know you. Of course I know you. Jesus wouldn't be dying up there unless he knew how messed up you were, that underneath all of your pretense and all of your masks, he knows about the addictions, he knows about the shame, he knows your story, and he says, I know you. I wouldn't be up here dying unless I did. And at the same time, 
He says, I love you so much. It is a demonstration of his love and his care for you. I know you. I know all of your story. And at the same time, I accept you. The cross does both of those two things. You put them together. And it satisfies and meets your deepest relational needs. That is what the gospel is. That, that is the claim of Christianity. And so where in any of that do you hear the invitation to start getting to work? Start getting spiritually busy? It's not. It is an invitation to come to Jesus as messed up as you are, as broken as you are, as shameful as you feel, knowing that when you do, God will not yawn. God will not grimace. He will accept you with open arms. And the hope of Christianity is not just that Jesus, that God accepts you as broken as you are, but it is the hope that he will begin to put you back together again. Now, for the rest of you, I want to talk to, to the rest of you who, um, who consider yourselves Christians. You know, we spoke uh, to our non-Christian friends and said, um, the solution to your life is to believe the gospel. So what's the solution for um, the Christians in the room? The solution for you is to believe the gospel. And that may feel really weird and counterintuitive because you're like, I'm in the Christian camp. That's why I'm in this camp because I believe the gospel. What do you mean by that? I know this feels counterintuitive. Let me illustrate it this way. One of my friends in Charlotte uh, a number of years ago uh, was having really awful neck pain, uh, just cricking his neck, I don't know, whatever. And uh, he eventually bit the bullet and decided to go see a chiropractor. He was a little, I guess, iffy about going to see a chiropractor for whatever reason, uh, just the reputation. And uh, he went in to see this guy, and after all the tests and you know, x-rays and everything, uh, the chiropractor said, okay, I'm going to begin treating your lower back. And uh, my friend was like, the pain's up here, though. This, um, <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have gone to see, uh, you know, it's just like out of a skit or something. And so he began treating his lower back, and it, it actually worked. It fit it, it, it was all fit together along his spine. And so what was out of whack uh, up here was really due to this uh, deeper problem down here. And so the reason I, I say that is when you look at your life and you see everything that's out of whack, the, the way that you, you know, experience your day-to-day life and it doesn't feel right, it all is because you have gotten the gospel out of whack. You, you aren't believing the gospel deep down. And so the invitation is as counterintuitive as it is, is to go down and to actually believe it again. Because my guess is your solution to your problem, so I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do more, I'm going to sign up for another Bible study, I'm going to get more busy. And the the claim of Ephesians itself just in the order is, no, go back and believe the gospel again. Let the cross begin to make sense in your head and in your heart again, because until it does, your life will continue to spin out with all of these things that are out of whack. And, And I know some of you are saying, but yeah, Matt... I get the gospel. I believe it. Jesus died for my sins. I've heard this since I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. Can't we move on to some deeper stuff? I get all of this. And I want to look at you and say, really? Do you really believe it like you think you do? If you really believe that uh, Jesus uh, has forgiven you, then why do you feel guilty all the time? If you really believe that Jesus died to make you his treasure. He loved you so much that he was willing to lay down his life. He loved you that much. Then why are you in competition with all your friends? Why are you so ashamed of your uh, sin that you have to hide it from your roommate? Why are you uh, obsessed and, and struggling with uh, your clothing size? 
If you really believed it like you think you do, then don't you think this would play out in your life differently? If you really believe that Jesus is king of the world like he says he is, then why are you so controlling and stressed out uh, when things don't go according to your plan? You see, the invitation is to come back and to believe the gospel again. All the pain that you see in your life, a lot of the pain can be explained by a simple fact that you have failed to believe the gospel. And so what we are going to do each week, starting next week, is we're going to begin in Ephesians 1, we're going to begin working our way through this whole book. Because that's what the order is, is you have to understand first who you are in Jesus. And once that begins to get grounded in your soul, that is going to play out into your life. Who you are determines what you do. And so that's where we're going this semester. Not with an invitation for you to get more spiritually busy, but with an invitation to believe the gospel of grace more fully. Okay, I want to wrap up. Uh, here. I want to go back to Colorado Springs with all those houses and country clubs and everything falling into the ground. Okay? You with me? Once the city officials began to figure out what was going on, they began conducting these geophysical tests to figure out where the, all the empty tunnels and, and uh, old mine shafts were. I don't know how they figured it out, but they eventually did. And so what they would do is they would bring in construction crews into people's neighborhoods and begin ripping out the concrete and drilling through. And once they would find these empty spaces, they would begin to fill it with all this stuff so that uh, the houses and neighborhoods up front could, you know, up top could stay afloat. And so here's the, the first paragraph of the article that I read. It said this, closing a street, drilling a hole in the pavement, spewing out water that turns to a sheet of ice and shattering the quiet with blasts of air might annoy residents in some, res- in some neighborhoods, but folks on country club circle are thrilled. Now, why are people in this neighborhood willing to undergo months and months of having their yard torn up, of having their lives totally inconvenienced, of having loud just explosions going off in the middle of the night? Why are they not just willing to undergo this, but they are thrilled about it? Here's why. It's because they are saying, we need you to drill down and to find the empty places, fill them with good things, so that my life can stay afloat up here. If you don't, then life as we know it will sink into ruin. And that is a picture of Ephesians. Everybody in this room is building your lives on places that cannot support the weight, and as a result, they are sinking into ruin. And no other solution works. Jesus is the only one who says, I will come into your life, and I will find the empty places, and I will fill them with myself so that your life can stay secure. Consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray uh, for these folks in this room and for me as well that we would uh, take a fresh look at the cross and a fresh look at the good news of Jesus. Would the grace of the gospel be something uh, that is not just the elementary doorway into this thing called Christianity, but I pray that it would be the very uh, shape and the foundation and everything behind what we do Would we be be people that actually believe the gospel and believe it deeply and let it play out into our lives? I, I ask this for these folks in this room and for me as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.